This podcast is about the Desiree Cooper Scholarship. The full house today, we have five people. If you guys could just introduce yourselves. Catherine, you start off. My name is Catherine Williams. I'm an architect in Northern Virginia, and I'm one of the, I guess, co-founders, a group of friends of Desiree who started the scholarship in 2017. Nicholas Hill, I work at an architecture firm in the Baltimore and D.C. area. I will second what Catherine said. I was also on the uh, scholarship committee for uh, the scholarship we created for Desiree. I also, at another firm I used to work for, we partnered on a project with uh, Little, the firm that Desiree was working with. So I was working in the office with her for about a year and a half. I'm Jennifer Matthews. I'm an architectural designer um, at a firm actually based in Montgomery, Alabama, which is my hometown. So that's kind of a somewhat of a new occurrence, but a full-time remote employee doing something a little different. I am a, a scholarship recipient. And as Nick just mentioned, my husband, Tim, actually worked with Desiree and Nick during that time when they kind of partnered with Little. So they worked together and I knew through association. I know. I'm Taya Wynn. I'm a NOMA member, so I know Nick and Catherine very well. And I met Jennifer shortly before we won the scholarship, actually, online in the NOMA ARE Facebook group. We were, like, giving each other big ups and trading uh, materials. So it's nice to see everyone. And I was the 2019 recipient of the Black Women in Architecture Scholarship Award. Hello, my name is Charlita Ololeye. I'm a zoning specialist with the Department of City Planning, and I've been a part of NICOBA NOMA for the past four years, serving on the executive board and as the chair of the education committee doing Project Pipeline and now ARE study group chair. I'm the 2020 DVC Scholarship Black Women in Architecture Award. award winner. <laughs> and it's an honor. I really, really appreciate the legacy of Black women in architecture that we have, the ones that we've um, had the privilege to get to know, like Roberta Washington and a lot of others and the new ones coming up, Catherine Williams. And so it's just, it's great to be a part of this legacy of women, incredible women. So, yeah. and I have a beautiful child and an awesome husband. <laughs> <laughs> My identity. <laughs> Happy to be here. I want to talk a little bit about who Desiree V. Cooper was. I know personally, I met Desiree at a NOMA event. I can't remember if she just got to D.C. or was in D.C. for a couple of months before she attended a NOMA event. I, I remember it vaguely. We were at a showroom. I think it was like a carpet showroom or something that D.C. NOMA had connections with. And it was her and it was Nakia Strong. And I met both of them at the same time. And we just clicked. And we clicked because, okay. So back in the day, I was going through a brutal breakup. And so was she. And so we kind of bonded with that. You know, just starting dating and and just, just getting over that, that heartbreak. We did a study group for LEAD. And we met up at Wagman's over in PG, Landover. It was me, her, and Donna Lewis. I don't know if you guys know her. She's a interiors, wonderful interiors person. So it was three of us and we hung out, met like once a week or something. Her and Nakia share birthdays. Birthdays were close together. And I was rummaging through my old email 
and uh, I was like looking at some correspondence and the last correspondent we had was a birthday party we went to hookah I don't remember remember that Nick yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, the teacher lounge yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking of her like I picture her she's coughing on the hookah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, that was, how did you meet Desiree, Catherine? Probably similar through Noma and through, I think, so I wasn't close friends with Desiree. I sort of knew her more as mutual friends of you and Nakia, but, you know, we would be at Noma events together. And I think one of the last times I remember us together was we were at, I want to say like the, the Nationals, like one of their like tailgating things or something. One, it was something outdoor. And I remember like a couple of us were there and she came for a while and like hung out. And I think then she was with a friend of hers. So, you know, it was like, she was, she was with her friend. So she came and hung out with us for a while and then she left with her friend. But so, so I sort of knew her by association and, and talked to her a little bit through, through that and, you know, learned a little bit about what she was doing and her house she was working on in DC but yeah, it was, it was kind of like a few like spots like here and there where we cross paths, but more, I say more so through you guys than through direct, you know, sort of conversation and, and connection with her. Yeah, Desiree was, Desiree was crew. I mean, you know, I think part of what, what you all are getting at is, you know, be, being from Chicago and being involved in Ionoma for years, that kind of the social glue that holds that organization together and it's intergenerational, it's really significant. Mm-hmm. It is truly significant. So you meet people or you're around, but you don't really remember how you met them, right? <laughs> just, you always been here, right? Like, you know, you see the one time? I think I met Desiree at the Noma conference in Detroit. I remember we were just, me and maybe it was me and Brian Hudson, we were just coming back into the hotel and went in the lobby, see who was there and they had that kind of mezzanine. And Brian Lee was over there. And he was talking to Desiree. They were just talking about work stuff, whatever. And we just sat down and said, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you on that kind of thing. So once I moved out here and started running around and getting people together, whether we go to stands or whatever, and the Kia moved up here, was then it's like, okay, now, you know, we're really getting getting the crew together, right? <laughs> so it, it, it was just like that. It's just social glue. And then, you know, having a chance to, to work with her with Little, that was cool. It was like, hey, my friend works here, you know? So it was really cool. I think that's, you know, the thing that that probably hurts the most, but makes the most significant is that she was like any one of you all. And that's what makes it hurt so bad. But also, I do this thing, you know, Catherine would have pulled this together for any, any of us, you know, and we will put the time in and put the work in. So we don't always have to act like someone is the queen of the world and they deserve something done. No, it could, that's your girl and you're going to stand up for her. She's not here to stand up for herself. And that's what that's what it's about for me. So, you know, we all wish Desiree was still here, but I think it's it's wonderful that we're continuing to do what we're doing. And I, I, I was gonna just say one more thing. I think I think Nick, I, I I echo that like she is us and we are her kind of thing because I feel like yeah she it, you know it could have been any of us. And I think also to like because she was such a good-hearted person and like so many during the whole memorial and all that kind of stuff. There were so many people who had so many good things to say about her and just like how how she made them feel and sort of the light that she brought when she was in a room and when she talked to people. I think 
that's kind of why it made it important for me to sort of like make sure that her memory was carried on because I feel like, you know, yeah, I did, I, I did feel so much that, that it's a part of me, especially because we're such a small community in Black women in architecture, that whole thing of it could have been one of us or it could have, you know, mm-hmm. that connection was there, even though, even though I wasn't, like you said, with you guys all the time, hanging out and stuff like that, that connection was still there. Yeah. It was just surreal. I mean, when I, I came home from work and, you know, I was working, <laughs> you know, down in D.C. So coming back to Baltimore is, you know, it's a hike coming back up 95. So when I got here and Laura was, you know, she was in the kitchen and she, she had tears in her eyes. I was like, what's wrong? And she said, you know, you told me what happened, you know, Desiree. I was like, my Desiree? Like, not one of your friends I ain't done before. <laughs> like, not that for real. Mm-hmm. And that's the, it's not like Lauren was best friends with Desiree, but she was one of us. Yeah, was one of us. That was crew. So yep. you know, that was it was significant. You know, it really was. And you know, it's it's definitely disappointing. But that's a girl, and we're gonna keep her raised up. So that's it. I mean, I remember it was funny you mentioned that Noma drop that was in Detroit, and I had this bright idea of like I'm going to let all my girls go right so <laughs> it was like it was me Desiree Nakia Devin Carol it was like five or six of us and I think Morena was there it was one other person I can't remember who that other person was but anyway I have this rule where you don't travel no more than four women at a time because you know because we're women that's that's but I was the coordinator and so it was kind of like, I, at that point, I was like, y'all do it. Y'all grow. Do whatever <laughs> y'all need to do. But it was it was great. We all like shared a room and then we all separated and then we got back together. And it was a great bonding experience up in Detroit. Like it was, it was really, it was so much fun. I remember I was at a women in architecture meeting. I was doing the 2017 Women's Leadership Summit. And it was like a group of us. And it was that night, it was a nighttime and it was like seven o'clock or something. And Nikia called me. So Nikia and I have this relationship where we don't talk. We text, we are text buddies. Okay, like we don't, cause we hate talking on the phone. Like we just, we just don't. And um, so Desiree and Nikia were roommates for like a year, I think. I think yeah. we may have done two years. I feel like it was a year. And then uh, Nikia went home to Atlanta and Desiree bought a house. So I was there at night and she called me and I was like, what in the world is going on? So I left the room. I was like, hey girl, what's up? And then that's what she told me what happened. And I just, I ran out of there. People were like, what's wrong? And I just ran out of there and I was just, I was just shocked. Like I, I just saw her, you know. I was talking. To, I was on. I was talking to Brian Hudson. I was about to give Desiree a call a couple of days before that, because I had some project that came across my plate, and I think I, I can't recall what it was, but I wanted to talk to her about maybe working on it with her. And I think Brian gave me a call. And I was talking to him about it. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll wait a little bit, something like that. But I was like just about to give her a call. So then when I found out what happened, I was like, damn, that would have been like the same. It was like the same day that I would have called her. And so. I, it's, it's, it was surreal. It was, just, it was absolutely surreal. I think the one thing that affected me after that, I have good relationships with, with female friends I've known for years now, you know, as you all are getting older, I'm not getting older. But, you know, with some of them, I hit them up and gave them, I told them what happened. And I was like, I tend to give you a little bit of space in your own relationships and everything. 
that's not going on anymore. Hmm. It's not going on anymore. So if you involved with anyone, I'm not saying I got to know what his social security number is, whatever, but I may be a little bit more pushy on who you're dealing with mm-hmm. because yeah. it was just kind of surreal. We didn't, none of us knew who this guy was, right? And it could be any, it could have been any of us, you know, it, it could have been anyone and you don't know who can, who's capable of what. Yeah, we get it. But you, you got to keep your, you have to stay close to your people. That's, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. So that's how it affected me. Again, we met because we had long-term relationships ended and we started dating people and we were like, okay, here's my number. Here's my mom's number. Here's your number, your mom's number. Mm -hmm. If anything is to go down, we have each other. And we would talk about who we're dating, you know, like, oh, no, he's crazy. You need to stay away from him. We were careful. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it could, it could have, it could have been me. It could have easily been me. And she knew this person. It wasn't like a online thing. It was me, you know, face to face. In person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, like if you would meet someone in a bar or in a club or at work or like whatever, it was just, uh, you just start talking and you see what, what's, what's up. So that, that was the shocking thing about it. And it was a point where you get comfortable and you just like, I didn't know who she was talking to. It was just like, she didn't know who I was talking to at the time. Some people, you know, you, you didn't define a relationship. Like you, you casually dating. Could I have been more in her life? And I, I go through this in my head sometimes. And what do you do? And what's the answer? That's the thing. Like it's, that's what's so, it's so frustrating, but what could we have done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't. What did anyone do? Hard part. With 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 gun violence, I mean, there's you know, there's there are families across the world that ask themselves that same question every day. What could we have done? And the answer is probably nothing. You know, things are going to happen however they do, and you know, you, you hope you keep. I don't even know what to say about it. You know, anything can happen anytime. It just is what it is. Um, and. Just to let the audience know, because we were being kind of vague right now. So she was at home with uh, a guy that she was talking to. I, I, I don't know if she was official or not or whatever, but in terms of the relationship, but he ended up killing her at her home and then committed suicide. So, oh God, it's, it, yeah. And the days that followed, I just, she was so close to her mom, like, they just went to Greece. I remember that because I was like, oh, you went to Greece? You went to Greece with your mother? I remember that so clearly. And just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'll, I'll say, uh, Melissa, I think that was for me, I think that's why that, that also made it important. I think as women, as women in relationships and, and just raising the issue of domestic violence and, and, and that as a, as the cause for why she's not here, right? I think that that's something that we don't necessarily always talk about. We don't necessarily talk about in our circles. I think we still haven't really necessarily had that conversation in sort of like our architecture circle. Maybe on a, on a wider, in a wider sphere, people have had that conversation. But I just think, I think that was also one of the issues why, why I felt like we needed to keep her name and to keep her memory alive because as much as, as much as we want her to be here, it's also a lesson, I think, for all of us and, and how we move forward in the world, how we move forward in our relationships, 
as much as we can sort of be mindful and cognizant and careful and 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 learn from it whatever we can and not that it was her fault she didn't do anything wrong obviously but I think I think for us it was all sort of like a wake-up call and you know just like you're talking about like the casualness of things and how we how we might move about in the world and and sort of really thinking about you know what do we need to do better I guess and and how do we like just like Nick was saying like how do we how do we keep our friends close and and also like have those conversations of like who's in our life and when we meet new people and you know what are the good what are the bad and what are the, the red flags and those kind of things and how can we how can we move forward in a better way from from this situation yeah I think there was a shift though I mean like you know as a person that's slightly younger like I had met Desiree in passing at a few NOMA conferences I can't even pinpoint I know it's the hallway and I can't even pinpoint which one <laughs> and then my next like vivid memory was like her popping up in like one of the Rosar's ball after party type where everyone was in the street. I remember her with Nakia because like I remember you know you co-locate people in your brain when you're like oh like I know they were friends they were together so like that's about it but you know I had moved to Philly in 2011 and I had kind of re-engaged Noma. I had not really been super active in Noma since 2008 when I was like leaving school. I know I definitely met her in 2008 when I was leaving school because the conference was in DC that year. And I remember her being such like an active part of that DC NOMA crew. And I remember when it happened, like one, because we had like started interacting on Facebook, right? This is when like Facebook was cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it was shocking because it was like this person I had met in real life that knew real people I kind of talked to. And then something really tragic happened so tragic it was on the news here in Philly right because I'm in Pennsylvania being crazy because you're connecting this thing like this person I met that knows people that I know and it's on the news like like, random people are saying in past because every news story mentioned her being an architect like random people that didn't know her are saying to me like oh are you like you know did you see that story like you know how your grandma comes up to you and being like no I, I I knew her right it's it was surreal and weird and also everyone in Noma reached out, right? Cause all the older folks didn't know who was cool with who and who knew who. And I got a, like a flood of emails of people like Andrew Thompson reaching out, are you okay? Brian Hudson reaching out, are you okay? And I was like, check, check on the other folks that like actually talk to her more frequently. Like, I mean, I'm shook, I'm shocked, but like, you know, there are people that were like for real friends with her that I, that I remembered. I think, you know, Nick, you said it kind of, really plain like it could have been any of us and it was that realization that like it could have been anyone and you're right it could have and I felt the shift I saw a shift I feel like the next conference the next NOMA conference I feel like everyone was a little closer right everyone was like all the older people were a little nosier Nick was definitely a little nosier right like I remember walking into LA the next year and getting a sit down from a bunch of grown men that I know professionally like we gotta talk about what you've been going on in your love life and me being like um do we do we need to discuss this right and I mean so I think like it definitely was this defining moment in Noma because like, you know, there's these two moments at the conference, right? There's that very strong professional network. And then there's that piece that's really more like your extended family reunion where like everyone comes over after the meal at, at, you know, on a holiday and like, you know, people are in your business. They're trying to figure out like when you finish in that test and I'm a tech, they really are going to text you. Right? So I think there was more of that than I had felt in previous years. And I couldn't tell was it 
like I had finally like grown up, right? I'd been in Noma and back involved enough years, and now like I was officially at the adult table. Or was it this shift that I noticed? But I I did always notice like there was something about that year that felt different from that point on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know like maybe the other folks felt differently. Like I know maybe you guys didn't know her as well, but like. I always feel that was like a defining moment for the organization yeah. and the connections within. Yeah, I think as as a person on the outside of everything, unfortunately, I didn't know Desiree personally. Kind of like I said, uh, Tim worked with Desiree and Nick at Little for about a year, huh? I'll text the table about it when it happened. He was just yeah, yeah. And there was a couple times before that day even came where, you know, it's like somebody something in passing is kind of said to you and you, you don't really think about it until you think about it. And there were multiple times where Tim was like, there, there's an architect at Little. Her name is Desiree. She, like, she has these personality and traits that, like, kind of remind me of you a little bit. And I think you guys would, like, be, re- you would really hit it off. I feel like, like she would be, like, this really good mentor for you. It's, like, it's just her spirit. And I think, like, some kind of way you got to come to Little one day so you can meet her. He said that to me at least two or three times. And I never made it to Little. I never got a chance to meet her. And I just remember the day that that happened, like I, I text him after work and he's like, I'm headed to Little, something happened to Desiree. And he was just like, he was just headed there to try to just, you know, see the people that he worked with before. At that point, he was working at the AIA. But I just remember that day and, you know, it kind of puts a lot into perspective. Like, you know, you always think you have this chance and at some point in life, you're going to meet somebody that somebody said something about and it, it you know, put it into perspective for me that, you know, you might not always have that chance. And unfortunately, I missed that chance. And it, it just, you know, never came up in my mind as like an urgency. And it is sad. It's, it's really sad. And, you know, 2020 now, I feel like, you know, when this year started, same situation, you know, you always want to catch up with people that cross your mind. And then you, it's like, well, you know, I, you know, I, I'm busy right now. I'll catch up with them later. Mm-hmm. You know, 2020 hits and it's like every month it's something or somebody. And earlier this year, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to do a better job of, you know, trying to reach out to somebody if they cross my mind. You know, that that happened for like maybe the first four months of the year. And then, you know, you slip back into the same thing until it happens again. And I, I think, you know, it just, it, it really makes you think about, you know, t- take the time to stop and really try to, you know, do the things that are in front of you and reach out to the people that are crossing your mind and, you know, just check in with people and check on people just to see what they're going through, what's happening and, you know, if they need somebody. So I really hate that that happened. And, you know, like you, like you all said, like she is a part of us in so many different ways. So it's unfortunate. So Catherine, how did you come up with the idea of doing a scholarship? And the and more importantly, you know, the it being for getting your license. A couple of reasons. So one, when Desiree passed, I think there were a group of us who, you know, we were all like, what are we gonna do? Like we have to do something to to keep her name alive, to keep her spirit alive, to honor this memory. So that first year, that first year we did this, we ran a marathon in Pittsburgh. Oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> I laughed because I didn't run it. 
they did it we did it we did it it was a relay marathon so it ended up i think it started out being like 10 of us we were all like oh yeah we're gonna like do something we're gonna do something so it ended up being four people who ran the marathon as a relay so four legs pittsburgh or harris harrisburg sorry not pittsburgh harrisburg where she's from the ymca there does a series of marathons throughout the year so there was one that we could sign up for as a relay so four four people ended up running that and we sort of did that as, you know, sort of in her memory. And we had these t-shirts and, you know, I think about, I think the four people who ran and their families and Desiree's mom and her dad and her brother were there. And so it was a really cool sort of like bonding event. And it was freezing cold in Harrisburg that day, but it was a really fun event and fun just to like be there. She was a runner. That was the other thing. She was a runner. Yeah. So, you know, it was a cool thing to, to honor her in that way. And I think, that was, I guess that was in 2016. So then in 2017, when I had been doing the Black Women Architecture Brunch, I was able to get sponsors. So that was like the second year for this brunch, which I had been doing in DC, really to connect women in DC, because as Black women here, a lot of times we're the only person at our job site, at our firm, whatever we're doing, even though DC is a pocket of Black architects, a lot of times we still don't see each other. And so this was an event to really get us all together in one room so that we could see each other's faces learn each other's names, figure out like how we could work together, partner together, study for exams together, whatever it was, so that we could be a support network. And so 2017, that year, I had been doing the brunch sort of like as of my own on this like shoestring, like get a couple thousand dollars from wherever I could find from some firm or whatever like that, just to be able to put it together. And that year I, w- I had extra money and I was like, what am I going to do with this money? Like, you know, <laughs> and, and for me, I have done a a non-traditional path through architecture. So I wasn't always at a firm where someone was paying for my exams. A lot of time it was coming out of my own pocket um, to pay for my exams. And I knew that that I wasn't the only one in that situation. And there weren't a lot of, at the time, there weren't a lot of ways for people who didn't have money to pay for exams to, to get money. I think the AIA had maybe started there, the pedigree scholarship, but that was really sort of the only scholarship for the ARE at the time. And I felt like if we're going to increase our numbers of Black women in architecture, like we, this one barrier was something that I could do something about. So I used the proceeds from the brunch to seed the scholarship. And, you know, since being an architect was important to Desiree and sort of one of the things that sort of defined her life here, especially in DC, it was something that we could have her name carry on as, as sort of the namesake of the scholarship. And I guess like the, the friends of hers, a group of us, you know, we sort of talked about it and figured out, like looked at applications and, you know, again, like this shoestring thing of like putting it all together. And then we had to figure out like how we were gonna like have the money. So, you know, I reached out to Noma and their foundation. And so they hold the money for the, for the scholarship because none of us wanted to start a 501c whatever needed to happen to make it a fun. We are like, a foundation already exists. We can give them the money. They hold the money. We'll, we do all the stuff behind the scenes as far as like the application. And we put together a jury of people who review the applications, including her family. Like to me, that was important was that her family was involved because her name is attached to this. I felt like if they wanted to be involved, that we needed to have them. So, you know, each year her mom reads the applications and helps decide who gets the the scholarship and you know I, I just got a text from her a couple of days ago on Christmas and I was like hey the scholarship applications coming up so 
I'm going to be calling you in a couple of weeks to, to start reviewing applications. And so I try to maintain uh, that relationship. And for me, I think I lost my mom in 2012 and she lost her daughter. So I kind of like, even though I don't see her as a surrogate mother, I kind of like know on the other end what she's going through. And so I kind of like keep it as an important tie to like, you know, reach out to her a couple of times a year and just say, hey, you know, what's going on? She, because, because we did the the, because we did the marathon, she knows my daughter. So she like asked about how my daughter is doing. And so we sort of like kept this relationship going since that time and, and sort of carried on through that way. Jennifer, were you the first recipient of the scholarship? I don't think so. Mine was 2019. Was that, that wasn't the first year, was it? 2018 was the first year. Okay. So you were the year after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jennifer and I were the same. Yeah, we were the same. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. So you got an email. (laughs) (laughs) I screamed. (laughs) All right, Jennifer, let's start with you. So so after the screaming, so it's kind of like you you received it. And then how was life? Like, so your life. (laughs) When the application came up, I was actually finishing up the last two quarters of, of grad school. So I knew the, the end was nearing and I had taken like a break just to get through that last little bit. And I was nearing like that last class. I put the application out there. And I think underlyingly, like I was at a firm that wasn't reimbursing for tests. And I knew that you know, after grad school, I just needed like that extra motivation and just like, and, you know, seeing Desiree's name and like remembering Tim and, you know, all the things that he'd said in the past, I told him about the scholarship and he's like, you should definitely go for it. And I said, well, okay, I will. But getting it, I think I was, I think underlyingly, I was just, I was more excited to kind of just kind of walk in her footsteps for a bit because it was, it was really sad that I didn't get a chance to meet her. So I think I was just excited. I was excited. I was motivated. Since then, I, I have three tests left. I've taken one test back in October. Since I finished grad school, it didn't go in my favor. I got to re-up and, you know, study some more for that thing. But I think it, to me, it was just kind of the motivation that I needed after finishing the degree to just kind of keep going and keep pushing. So that is what I'm doing now. All right, Ty? So I had been, so similar to Catherine, I've had a non-traditional path through architecture. And it was really hard because I would come to the conference every year and everyone asked, even outside of the conference, right? The first question anybody who's in traditional practice asks you is like, so when are you getting your license? And I think one of the hardest questions that's always been for me to answer is like that question, because I was like, I'm doing all this stuff, right? I'm doing all this stuff. Like I'm doing, I'm, I'm proud of me and I'm still getting stuck up on this like one question. And I was like, do you not understand what I do? Like does just no one cured you? cancer, AIDS, and like solve poverty. I don't understand. So I lucked out in 2014, I got a job in Philly right before the, the Philadelphia conference where I was working at the housing authority and it was a NOMA member. It was like how I got the job was a really crazy story for another podcast another day. But like it was a NOMA member that I like had met at a meeting that hadn't been coming. I kind of like, he was like, oh yeah, I need someone like you in my office. And then I get the job and he can sign for AXP hours, right? 
So all of a sudden I'm back on a path that I had been off of for five years. Like it was no way of me getting ID, like real IDP hours. Like I finished all the like BS, you can just volunteer and like pretend you're drawing and yeah. get someone to sign for it hours. Like I had not had any real hours. So like all of a sudden I'm, I'm now able to get real hours. And I was like, all right, well, I gotta get as many of them as I can while I'm here. And so it became like a dogged pursuit of these hours. I was doing these hours. Cause I was like, I'm not even gonna start thinking about testing if I can't even finish the hours, because I'm like, I know at this point, I'm not going back in traditional practice. I don't even want to delude myself. So I had like finally made it a point where I could like start testing and like getting into it. It was so difficult. I worked at a place, my housing authority didn't pay for tests, right? Like my boss himself, I'm sure if I had finished all the tests, he would have like given me a $200 check, right? But, and anything that he had in the office, he would throw your way. It's like, you could take graphic standards home, but like, we didn't do that type of work. We didn't have anything in the office. So I was like online, Catherine was a really great resource actually, but like trying to get as many like free resources as I could. How do you cobble them together? You know, go bust open your old architecture books and find all your structures books you haven't touched in 10 years. It was wild, you know, kitchen discard books when other people were like, oh, you know, but like, it was also the, the, the switch to 4.0. So like a lot of people had finished in 3.0. Like most people I knew in Noma had been done, right? even folks that weren't that much older than me. And so I was like, this is not helpful. I, I, I had to actually invest in some stuff. And so my mom had died in 2012. I was getting her pension. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna take a piece of this money every year and I'm gonna like start investing in the stuff that I need. So I started getting the books. It was, I mean, those suckers are expensive, right? The books were expensive. And it was hard because like, I finally, like I had joined a NOMA study group but it was like more of like emotional support than it was actual practical help. And I made it, I was studying like crazy. I didn't really tell anybody, right? Cause you know, there weren't a lot of people here in Philly that were studying. A lot of people in Philly that are like within like seven to 15 years older than me, never finished. There's like, that's the Philly story. We have so few people that finish. And so I was like, well, like there's no one in my immediate vicinity who can help. I just gotta like, I'm good at test taking. I know this about myself. I just gotta like do it. And so I was studying, I was studying, and I feel like I had just hit a wall. Like I had made the transition to 5.0 by the skin of my teeth. I actually took a test two days before the cutoff. And I didn't even know, like I thought I had failed at walking out the door and I didn't find out till two weeks after that I actually had it. And like, I, that, that meant I was grandfathered. I only had two tests left. And I was like, what? I was like, oh my gosh. And I feel like I had just run out of steam. Like I had done so much in a year. And I was like, this was really hard. Like, especially as busy as I was at the time I was chapter president, I joined the national board. And I was like, carving time out for studying was like hellish for me. And I'm just hearing people act like I was supposed to be finished two weeks ago. Like, oh, when are you gonna be done, right? When are you gonna be done? And I'm like, do you not know what I'm doing to get through this? Like, this isn't helpful. And I feel like the only two people on earth who were even at all remotely helpful, for real, was like Catherine and Brian Hudson, two people that aren't in a, anywhere remotely close to me, right? I'm talking to them on Facebook and through text messages. And so that year when the scholarship came up, I wasn't going to do it because I was like, I know Catherine, it's going to look like nepotism. Like, I can't apply for this. Like, all that I've been doing in Noma, I think I had, like, I, was, I, had, I was like, I can't, like, it's ridiculous. Like, for me to even think that I should apply for this is insane. And then I think it was getting close to the deadline and Catherine and Nakia were hitting me up every day. They were like, there's not enough people who submitted from PA. 
like, you know, can you send it out? Can you send it out? So I'm like sending it out to all these other people, like trying to convince like people I rarely, barely know, like you should really apply for the scholarship. You don't know what it is. And then in the end, like one of uh, my VP was like, you have two tests left and you don't have any money. <laughs> apply for the scholarship. That's the last two tests, right? Like, you know, just buy the credits. And then like, that's one thing, like you don't have to worry about. It's like one more anxiety you can cross off your list. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Let me do it. And so I was really ecstatic when I got it because like one, I was like, great. Like I bought the credits. So like I, I was able to secure my seat for, for 5.0 for like the last two tests. And then 2020 happened and it's been like crazy. And I used the credit halfway through the year, like realizing Prometric wasn't opening and everything was shifting. So I actually was able to schedule out a test in 2021 mm-hmm. that I was like, you know, it's super far out. And I was like, this is crazy, but it was the first test that was available on a Saturday. And I was like, well, let me just lock it in, right? And I wouldn't have been able to because like, I definitely didn't have the money at the time. So like, I was like, this is why you, like, this is why it was just, it was a really big relief to not have to worry about that. It also gave me comfort because I was like, you know, doing, they're so expensive. And I was sitting there and I was like, the two that I struggled with, the, like the two, the three I'd already passed, I had taken two twice. And there's nothing that hurts more than like getting that test, failing it and having to put out another 250. And then I figure out like what study material then I have to get. Like you start this money cycle all over again. Like, you know, you go through all your grief stages of like your own failure. Like I just wasted all this money. Like that's where you latch on as like a person. You're like, I wasted all this money. And so I felt like it was nice. Cause I was like, even if I don't pass both of them, like it's, I'm not spending any more money than I would have already had to spend, right? So like, I've got this security blanket of if I have to take it again, I know I'm covered and I don't even have to worry about it. I can just do it. And I've not had to take anyone three times. So like, I feel like that was my, my stylist of like, I can do this. And I think it was, it was helpful because the money that I would have had to spend on a test, one test, right? I was able to put in the other study materials that I needed to get through 5.0. And now we got black spectacles. <laughs> so so I will say that I, I've never been on the jury. I kind of like took myself out of that process because I knew a lot of the women. And so I try to get people who are other people on the jury because, because of that. So yeah. So you don't have to worry about like, I'm in the room, like deciding. <laughs> I was like, man, everybody knows But, but I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> For me, I mean, I was shocked. Like, I was very excited. I think to start off, I didn't actually know Desiree personally, but I think I'm kind of overwhelmed hearing her story from you all. I didn't know all of, I didn't know all the details. And what stood out to me about the scholarship is that she was a light. It seemed like she impacted so many people and she used her life for good, which is what I hope we all desire. So that was that was a personal encouragement. And so when I did see, oh yes, and it's a reminder to just take every moment. Like basically what Jennifer was saying, take advantage of every moment. Like I, I've been putting some things off and it's like, no, you actually just have to go for it. Like don't hold back. I had passed my first exam in 2019 and I was gearing up to start studying again at the beginning of 2020. And I had, my little one was 10 months old. So it was just, it was a, a big personal shift that I was going through. So to, to get the scholarship and have the money and just have a, it was just a, a way to get my engine going 
for the exams. Like it was a big encouragement. So it's really grateful for it. So either Nick or Catherine, can you guys get into the details of the scholarship? Like the requirements and when it's due and all that good stuff. Catherine, you want to get into that? I actually had some questions from for Jennifer and Ty and Charlita. I was going to put on my juror glasses real quick. But do you want to go over the details? And then I just wanted to see how their, you know, how their activities have changed on, or not changed, but how they've grown their activity on this side of the scholarship. So, but do you want to, and we did post the, the scholarship is live now for 2021. We added a component for a NOMA member. Catherine, you yeah. want to? So, so a couple things. Yeah. So the, the scholarship is live. It's due on January 11th. We usually have it due we usually release it in December, have it due in January with the goal of doing the announcement in February because that was Desiree's birthday was in February. So we try to release it around in February, the winners. And we had three awards previously, the Black Women in Architecture Award, which really any Black woman can apply for. We have the Harrisburg Award, which basically is anyone a minority resident of Pennsylvania, since that is where she was from. And then we have the DC Memorial Award, which again, any minority resident of the DC, Maryland or Virginia area, since she was working in DC during um, the last, last years of her life. And then this year we added the No More Award. And really that came about because again, doing the brunch this year, because it was virtual and because we've gotten a lot of traction around the award, one because of Desiree's name. And I think because of 2020 and people looking to help Black architects and other architects of color, we had additional funds. So we felt like, we also felt like, I think we uh, wanted to add something that could sort of stretch our, our requirements, our eligibility a little bit more. So the NOMA award basically is any, any NOMA member can apply for, regardless of where they live. And so that's our fourth award this year. We also increased the amount this year. So the Black Women Architecture, because that is sort of our premier award and because we had funds this year to really sort of add to the pot of what we've been doing since we've sort of been raising funds now since 2017, we sort of built up a nice little nest egg. And so this year, the Black Women Architecture Award will actually fund the entire six exams for the winner. And we also increased the DC award and the Harrisburg award. So again, you know, it's really just our way of sort of, again, like I said, trying to eliminate that barrier of cost because we know for a lot of architects just starting out and, you know, sort of not at the not licensed level, like getting money to take exams can be a difficult thing. And then also just because of 2020, like we know, you know, so many firms had furloughs or had layoffs this year. And I'm sure there are people who, thought that they were going to be in a firm that was going to pay for their exam and maybe they, they don't have a situation anymore. So hopefully this can provide that assistance. And basically the award to be eligible is to, you know, must be African-American, Hispanic, Asian, or Native American interest, ancestry, legal or permanent resident of the United States. We ask that people have passed at least one section of the ARE. And we do that because we want people that are already actively in the process and have started and are moving along that path and not someone who's like maybe thinking about it, but isn't sure that this is what they want to do. But you can't have had any discipline from NCARB and we can't, can't have been awarded any other full ARE. So like the Pedigree Scholarship, I think awards a full, the full cost of the exams. I'm not sure there's any others, but we ask that people don't apply if they've already gotten that scholarship. 
And then in the past, we, we, the, the, firm, the firm not paying has been a requirement. This year, we're asking that people submit documentation on whether their firm does or does not pay. And that will be taken into consideration, but we're not making it a straight out requirement this year because we are trying to stretch sort of our eligibility a little bit more. And we know that even if a firm pays for this, pays for the exams, that study materials is still a cost that people bear the burden of that is not always taken up by a firm. So even though we don't explicitly say like you can use this for study materials, like once people get the funds, we know that that may be something that they use it for. So that's, that's kind of our 2021 award. So yeah, it's on the Black Women Architecture website, which is bwa-network.com. And you can just go under the initiatives and it's under the Desiree Cooper Scholarship. So I'll just also include it in the show notes of this podcast. So Okay, great. Perfect, perfect. Did I miss anything, Nick? I think you covered it pretty well, yeah. You know, I don't want to nitpick and say, yeah. <laughs> So, so Nick, Nick, uh, Nick, and Nikia Armstrong from Atlanta, and who else? Rich, Rich. Oh yeah, Richard Liu joined to our committee this year. He's going to be the chair of the jury. He's an architect in DC. He's going to be the chair of the jury, and we've sort of been the small committee that have been organizing over the last couple of months to get the application out. So, Mm -hmm. that's our team for this year. Yes, indeed. Yes, just looking at the three of you that have won and. As I said, you know, we're this is a, you know it's a scholarship for emerging professionals, and you know, however long we emerge, hey, it's a nebulous amount of time, right? <laughs> but you know, kind of looking into you know how you how you apply and what you you know plan application and you know where you were at that point in time and kind of where you are now, I just wanted to you know want to speak on that a little bit. Uh, I was looking back, well, think thinking back or looking back, so I was definitely involved in 2018 and 2019 more heavily than I was in for 2020 award. So I do remember looking over, you know, Jennifer looking over your application, Ty looking over your application and seeing what you've done and how you put things together. It was just, it was really cool, you know, really cool. But I went back and took a, a couple of notes for the podcast, but I remember Jennifer, you know, it just seemed like, you know, whatever you were involved in, you weren't just doing it to check a box, but you accomplished something significant and lasting, you know? Mm-hmm. So the, the one thing, the Mind the Gap event, right? I mean, obviously we did, you know, first African-American VP of IS is great as a role, but as far as a lasting, you know, initiative, you know, with the Mind the Gap event to, you know, to be recognized by a magazine, get an award, you know, for for introducing college students to healthcare architecture. I mean, it's not just, you know, oh yeah, we're gonna have something for the kids and on a little Saturday and call it a day. Like it's something that, no, we're gonna put this in the organization. We're gonna hopefully, you know, get them matriculating through school and it's it's really something. So Doing things like that, you know, just like your whole application, like you were just ready, <laughs> you know, you know, but how did you balance out that confidence with the, you know, the vulnerability that architecture places on our shoulders and weighs us down with sometimes? How'd you balance those out? Uh, I went to a HBCU. <laughs> well, I, I, at Tuskegee, I think Tuskegee prepared me. Tuskegee taught me, hashtag, you know, you run like the students there are always a part. Part of, of something they're always leading something they're always creating something everybody has kind of their own little niche and place and whatever they're interested in you know I feel like the HBCU culture always like cultivates whatever it is your the, the hustle everything you're interested in anything you could ever want to start any business you're trying to you know run on the yard anything 
But well, the one thing that happened to me at Tuskegee was I shifted away from the, so- the university softball team and I like went full blown into like student organization life and create like help like create these first time events that really help the student body. We didn't have architecture specific career fairs. So the one thing that empowered me to like just Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Man, that answer was just so powerful. It just, no, <laughs> it just blew her. Knocked out the field. Hey, Melissa, get your editing ready. I did. Get some editing oh, together. Seeing, like, my, um, my colleagues. At there we go. Wait, um, Jennifer, you got to have the backup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can you, sorry. I'm back. I'm back. What was the last thing you heard? <laughs> You were talking about the career, um, the career affairs. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with the AIS NOMA chapter there, I was the AIS president. We started this first time kind of career fair. And I think the thing that motivated me the most out of like just jumpstarting events was to see the opportunities that like my colleagues around me had to sit down with firms for the first time, to actually talk to architects outside of our, our you know, college for the first time. And I carried that with me to the AIS national level, just, you know, reaching out to the students, getting them motivated to do more, talking to the HBCU students, visiting like the schools when I could. That wasn't something that, you know, the the national officers had done before I got there. I think I spoke at the NOMA conference that year and just tried to like, you know, get us out there and just like, like showing the, the leaders around me that, you know, that presence is necessary. And I don't know, I think that that just ability to give others opportunities around me to, you know, expose them to things that they might not have known about before has always motivated me. So it's always kept me. I did a NOMA symposium uh, with the DC NOMA chapter that, you know, kind of got a lot of the DMV students together and just like, you know, in one room and just, you know, hearing from architects, hearing from different people and, you know, doing all these events and things. And then, you know, the array architects thing came up. So, you know, if there's a space, there's an opportunity, there's a way to <laughs> create an event. I'm usually like the little, you know, wild child behind those things when those things sporadically pop up. So I think since the the array mind the gap, I kind of created this platform called Creatives XP that introduces students to traditional and non-traditional career paths. Like it, it really, to me, gave the students in the DMV and even wherever just that opportunity to know more about their career options. Because me, me graduating from Tuskegee, you know, the reality is your your whole student body isn't going to find a job in architecture in a firm. And then a lot of those students are then lost as to what to do. You know, they end up working in careers that have nothing to do with design-related things. So. I think that that's one thing that's always motivated me, but I didn't know how to really facilitate it. So Creatives XP has been that thing. Unfortunately, like COVID hit as soon as it kind of popped off for the first event last year. And I feel like a lot of people are kind of over the digital Zoom world in the sense. So it's been me kind of underlyingly scheming to see, you know, what's the best way to kind of reach out to these students as they're at home or whatever coming up on this spring when my second event of, you know, what would have been my creatives explore event would have been. So I'm just, I'm always the wild child behind some event that's happening out there in the world somewhere. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I've been doing. Mind the Gap still happens this year. It was unfortunately canceled because of COVID, but you know, it's still going on. 
But that's what motivates me is just giving the students and emerging professionals like those opportunities to get some kind of experience or interaction, whereas they may not in their firm or at their school or, you know, whatever, what, what have you. So that was a lot, but <laughs> that's what keeps me going. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. I think I got it, but do you mind rephrasing or repeating the question? My little one and her cousin walked in right at the moment that <laughs> you were explaining. So. Yeah, no problem. So I just want you know, the, the purpose of the, applic- of the application for the scholarship is basically it's for emerging professionals is to help you all out, you know, specifically with, you know, with completing the, the licensure exam, obviously. But from the place in your life that you are, you're obviously an emerging professional. And, you know, however, I kind of you know, said in jest, however long you emerge, you know, it can take some time, right? But you're definitely in a certain place in your life and your career when you applied for the scholarship, and I just want to see what that energy was and how you continue that energy on this side of the scholarship, you know? So that's really the, the main purpose. And Charlita, since you spoke up, I'll go to you. But being in New York, wonderful examples of Black women in architecture. I mean, you know, your Roberta Washington, your Heather Philip O'Neill, your Pascal Sublime, mm-hmm. uh, those are, you know, big ticket architects right there. And then so many of our other, I always say friends of the room, the Erica Cochran's and everyone, and Iron Mia Jones, just wonderful people up there. Yeah. How did that really, being involved with them, I mean, you know, a lot of your involvement, I call Manoma, was what you put on your, your application, but just being able to rub elbows, rub shoulders, catch an ear hustle around women like that, like, how did that really influence you? And how did you, how have you been able to continue the work that you intended to continue the programming and creating the talent and content for I call Manoma? How mm-hmm. have you continued to do that on this side? Right. So, well, first of all, it was an incredible experience to be around these women and just the incredible, every, all the incredible architects in New York, like Ibrahim, all of them, they were like big brothers and big sisters. We're, we're creating programming, we're expanding project pipeline. And I just had incredible support. Like right when I came in, Pascal was the, I just told her this, I just called her a little while ago because right when I came in, she was the president of Nicoba Noma and she had her little one in the meetings and we would be sitting at the board table and he would be running around, but she would still, you know, get through the meeting and it would all be, it was official and it was as family reunion as Nicoba, as Noma is, you know, we were having fun, but we were getting things done. And it was just, it was very impactful to see that type of leadership that it's possible that it exists. And just to be in the room with women creating spaces that didn't exist before was also exciting because I went to Hampton University and we did a lot of program building, which was very fun. And so to bring that into your professional life, going from being a student to the professional organization, it was encouraging to see like, there's no boundaries. Like we already had a structure and then we could expand it. So for Project Pipeline, we did, instead of doing it in one borough, we tried to expand it to a lot of different boroughs. And it was just, we had so much support. Like I had so much support on anything that I wanted to do. And then there was just so much knowledge. Like it's, it was incredible. Like, (laughs) so I just, being in New York with these architects was, I'm, I don't know. They're just, they're great people. Like I knew we got to know each other's families and we got to just build basically we're just designing for our community. And and that's what it's always been about for me, wherever I'm planted. I like to join with the people who are creating and who are designing spaces for what we actually need. And then that's what we do. So we, we went to work. (laughs) Nikova Goma, we went to work. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Wonderful. Oh, and how am I continuing it? I'm the chair of the- In spite uh, of COVID, Harry. in spite of COVID. You know. Sorry? <laughs> in spite of COVID. In yeah. spite of COVID. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think actually this overlapped with just a huge personal shift in my life, like becoming a mother and a wife. It's just an identity shift and combining that with kind of like your your former self of going hard and going after things, but now you're going hard for your family. And so- that has been an interesting balance. That's been my 2020. Like, what does that look like to, to do both? So I think it was helpful to talk to a few, again, a few architects in New York about what their experience is and what, what works. Basically it's have a village and just keep going, you know? So working at that, but ARE study group has been going strong, connected with a few different cities, trying to see what they're doing. That's been fun, but yeah, basically just keep going. That's my yes, indeed. Keep pushing. Keep model pushing. for 2020. Yeah. Taya, Taya. One thing you kind of mentioned it on the on the call today, kind of being operating in a different environment than you were schooled at. So coming from architecture, having that background, but not working in traditional firms. But I remember one piece on your on your application, which was cool. It's almost like you had the opportunity to. I say as architects, we can get caught up in talking, speaking to ourselves a little bit too much. And you didn't really have to go through that. So you could kind of, you know, set the stage. You could kind of position architects to do the work that you determined. One thing you talked about in your application and your essay was having, you thought having more architects at the front end of projects ultimately strengthen our profession and, and show the value of our education to the world. And that's really important. I think one thing about Desiree, the work that she was doing at Little, it was a little bit more business influence with some of the projects, uh, a little bit more on the real estate side of things. And that was really interesting. So kind of not that she wasn't getting them drawings out, <laughs> you know, we got to, but I think there's, uh, how do you see the, how would you tie those two things together? I mean, kind of the work that you were doing, and I think still doing now, it is kind of in the light of Desiree, right? It's, it's. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but it kind of is. So yeah, how how would you talk about the importance of that kind of setting the stage for the work and not just being the ones pumping out drawings 8,000 hours a day, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's crucial. So when I was in school, we took our pro-prac class the last year. And I remember like studying pro-prac as a fifth year and it hit me, like architects don't define the project. There's nothing about, we don't control any piece, right? By the time the project comes to us, the client already knows what they want to do. They already know what they're going to spend. And we have the option to say yes or no. And most architects aren't in a position to say no, just financially. Most people can't. And then like a really great architect can try to transform it once they're in the job. And a star architect might be so big that the client just does whatever they say. But rarely is that really the case, right? You're going to have to do, and then like there's that whole added aspect that happens once you go to construction, once the GC gets involved. And that's where like people complain a lot about architects and it's in that space, right? And so it's interesting because I've worked for for companies where being an architect was the non-traditional background in whatever space I was in. I was surrounded by lawyers and MPAs and occasionally there's a planner sprinkled in that everybody thinks is an architect, right? But like for the most part, it's folks that are in the humanities and coming in and being an architect and 
everyone wants our skill set on the front end and there's none of us like you might every now and then you get a couple on a board you might have a volunteer architect that's you know ear hustling around an organization a nonprofit or community organization because they're trying to get the job and you know a very tiny bit when i was working in nonprofits do you get like some pro bono services but almost always the pro bono services are from like small to medium size white owned firms where it's like the namesake is still there and they use that to like advertise to the rest of that that demographic of nonprofits so it also never it feels extractionary at times right it doesn't always feel like they're doing it I mean, they do care, but like there's a they, there's a business transaction there that's like hidden in, in the wake. And so when I think a lot about like the jobs where I've had to be influential, it's in that front end feasibility, right? That's when you're figuring out how big could this be? What site are we gonna pick? Like most people don't wanna spend the money to hire the architect at that stage. And the projects that can afford to do it are very, very big. So you don't get that in the context where I guess kind of going back to what Charlita said, right? The projects in our communities, like no one's hiring an architect to figure out should they buy this lot, get this $1 lot from the city or get that $1 lot from the city. And so understanding the importance of having us in that room at that point, I think also working at organizations that have are used to doing real estate and used to hiring architects. I, it baffled me how little they understand about our industry in the space of how they vet our proposals, in the space of how they write the RFPs that architects respond to, or even how they try to advertise for their jobs. You know, the number of places I've worked where they're like, oh, we just put all our solicitations on our website like we do for everything else. And I'm like, well, how is that going to get you more MBEs? Are they checking your, do you even know if they know your website? Like, are you emailing them the link to your website? And like, hey, this thing is, is live. And they're like, no, but you want a different result? Like, that's, even, that's insanity. Like, actually, it's the definition. So I, I think having more of us on the front end is a space where, you know, it's not typically valued, right? We, that's not something we highlight or we elevate at our in our in our professional networks but having a person that can like actually award the jobs that's like a big thing like you know the number of people I'm able to like sneak in a room or like you know I control the list like so I can just write you know half of Nicoba and Philonoma and I can write all the names on there and you're like well at least they're going to be in the room and you're going to have to listen to them you're going to have to like give them the chance and you know at one point like when I first 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 realized I might not be able to to be licensed I was like well at least I got to advocate for the folks in the field right like I won't feel like I'm I'm living up to to my degree if I'm not at least advocating for the importance of what we do and I think I lucked out because in my city a lot of people are in that space a lot of people are working for owners we have a lot of NOMA members that are like working for Temple or working for the housing authority. They're working for these large organizations, but it's still something where like people that gravitate in that space, it's always still seen as like, it's cause you couldn't do, you couldn't make it in the other space. And I think like trying to figure out a way that it becomes something that we value. And I think, you know, I think back to like the moment where I was like, I need to figure out through come hell or high water some way to get my license. It was that I met a guy, he works for AKRF, which is a large consulting firm. They mostly consult in the environmental and real estate space. And he was the project manager and they were doing some pro bono work with the first nonprofit I worked for. It was a black guy, 
he lived in Philly, but worked in the New York City office and commuted every day. So I knew he made a lot of money because that's like an expensive commute. And like, you know, you knew he was expensive. Like he had expensive suits, he had expensive watches. You knew he walked in the room, he was expensive. <laughs> and I remember he was like an MBA, he had an architecture degree and he had gotten his license. And I remember he said he didn't switch. He knew he always wanted to end up in real estate, but he didn't switch until he got his license. And I said, why? And he was like, do you know how nice it is to sit in a room and somebody doesn't know you're an architect? And then they say something and then you're like, oh, that's not true. And they're like, well, you don't know. And you're like, actually. And he was like, having his license changed the game for him in that space. And he was like, don't think that it's just about stamping people's drawings. Yeah. And I was like, dang, you're right, right? Cause like no one can touch you when you're in a meeting you're like, that's not how that works. And they're like, what do you know? We're just gonna ask the architect. And you're like, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me tell yeah. you about the license I got over here, you know? It changes. Or the zoning code or the building code. Right, you know, it just, it, you, it changes your weight in the room. And he was like, as a black person moving up at a large company, right? He's like, I couldn't get, I can't make, I can't make that up, right? I can't tell you. And like, you know, when I talk to architects and they try to quantify how much more money they made, it was always sad. Cause people would be like, I got my license and my firm gave me a hug and featured me on their website. Or, you know, I got my license. Maybe I got $7,000. I'm like, $7,000? That's like, that's not even a phone bill a month. What? Like, that's crazy. It, it costs more than that <laughs> to take the test. This, this is insane. But like you're not getting like a 20 grand raise. And people are like, no, like not at all. For him, it was like 30k difference in salary when he got his license. And I was like, and I see that, right? The space fit in when there is a car. Not not a not a cheap car, but you know, it ain't a nice car. Yeah, that's a nice car. It's a nice car. Adult car. Second everything. You might have both speakers. <laughs> and like you know when I see people in even like city government because I do a lot of work with city government like the folks that are at the top we're one of the degrees like you know they'll be like they want an MBA they want an MPA they want a lawyer and like that we're like that one degree that like you didn't need to go and do all the extra stuff and you might still be able to qualify for that position and I just don't think there's enough people that try to go after them just, I mean, there's 28 licensed architects. I keep the, actually no, there's 32 licensed architects in Philly. I keep a list. Of, there's literally a posted in front of me. So like, there's 32, right? Black architects in Philly. That's a good point. Because I work for the Department of City Planning, and I wondered, it's planning. We're figure, we're designing the city, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how many architects, especially who are in our communities, are here so that we can change the world you know this is how we do it we have to be in these positions so yeah it's a really good point you brought up it is great work y'all are doing I mean I think part of this is being involved in in looking at the at the content you all provide every year is just it's not amazing because I know you put it to work but it's just looking at it's like hey like this is really, <laughs> this is really dynamite so I really enjoyed every year just looking through the applications and seeing Seeing how you, what you say about yourself. I mean, you have to speak your own, people say you have to stand in your own truth. You have to speak your own story. And no one else is going to speak it for you. I think every year just seeing all the applicants is just, it's really wonderful. It's great work. And I think seeing how you all reflect Desiree's in different ways is wonderful. Seeing how this content reflects different perspectives from architects, from uh, all around, you know, I, I, excuse me, I can't even talk. Obviously throughout our region, 
but different people that we know or don't know. Seeing our family tree grow and grow. And Shona is significant. One, one gentleman spoke up, was it a couple years ago, Catherine? And he would say, hey, you know, who is Desiree? You know, why she deserves Oh, coffee. gosh. Yeah. I, was like, I don't even drink so- beer, but hold my beer. <laughs> he was mad at our website. He was mad because like the description that we had on the website, he's like, well, who wrote this? This doesn't even sound good. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like totally missing the point. Really? It's totally missing the point. And I think part of what I tried to, to say then, very nicely, <laughs> why does Desiree deserve a scholarship? I wish that we wouldn't have to do a scholarship for Desiree. Right. Of course. That's the point. I wish that she was here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do any of this. I'd rather she was still here. Right. So I'm not going to let someone come at my friend and say, oh, like, we got to validate who she was. Hey, that's, that, we're not, <laughs> that's a non-starter. Because right? <laughs> I feel like this is like, for me, this is like, my if I have a pet peeve sometimes with our mm-hmm. circle, mm-hmm. I think you've said it a few times, right? You know, she could have been any one of us. And I know that sometimes I fall into the, into the, what they call us, the nomarati, right? And <laughs> like the, the folks that everybody sees over and over and over again, Mm-hmm. And I know I'm friends with a lot of the people that folks see their names over and over again. And I'm very close to folks in Philly who aren't in that group. And they all, I get teased all the time, right? I'm like, I get teased about how like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Like, it, it's, it's all good fun. But I also feel like we're an organization where more often than not, I feel like the women are the ones that don't get pulled up. And I think there's a handful of women that once you like hit a certain level, you get named over and over and over and over time again, you get pulled and you get all these opportunities. And then it's treated like all the other women in Noma don't exist. And the one time we see them is when we do Vortex, right? You go in Vortex and then the room is filled with like 200 people and you would have thought for the whole year there was only 10. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Everyone knows Nikki, everyone knows Devin, everyone knows Catherine, me, Kim, Tiffany, Pascal, like you, like we get, we're inundated, right? Um, to the point that like it sucks because we're all still rising in our career and we all still need the notoriety for outside of our circle right mm-hmm. but like there's still a million other people that aren't getting that that press and I think one of the things to me that was always really great about this award is that it gave an opportunity to some of the other folks to be like no but they're working too like you said you've got these amazing applications and they're working and putting in the work at their firms and people just don't know who they are. Maybe they don't come to conferences. Maybe they're introvert. Maybe they're quiet. Maybe they're at a firm that's really big and they don't get the opportunity to present every year, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't know Brian Hudson personally, right? And I think it's about making sure we make space for all of those folks because we don't. And then one of the big things I've heard, you know, especially now that I do a lot of the conference planning, is like people saying that we're cliquish. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't even fight it. And you're like, I get it. And I was like, the click is important, right? The click is yeah. my family, right? It's, yeah. it's like, it's a, it's an important thing in my life as a person who like, I, I don't, my mother's dead. I have one little brother, like this is my family, right? I was in Chicago in the middle of the pandemic. I flew in and like, who brought me Lysol wipes? Brian Hudson drove, to, <laughs> drove over and brought me Lysol wipes, right? Like that was who my, my people were, who made sure I got a ride over to like get what I forgot what we had to get, but it was like some giveaway for, for masks, right? And I drove to a thing with Jason, right? Where I was like, he was the only person I had even been around 
as of like August 16th for longer than like within six feet of me, the closest person that got into me all year was Jason Pugh. And so like, you know, there's a, a strength to that family that means something to me, but I understand that like it can't isolate other folks. We got like, we got to be able to let other people in. And so, I think- Definitely. I, I think one, yeah. one thing to, to respond to gentlemen is that we can't expect that everyone is going to have an AIA gold medal, you know, two years after they start practicing, right? Or that right. you have to have, you have to be a Prisker Prize winner to facilitate a scholarship and have this whole jury of people of star architecture. It's like, well, hold on. Like Rome wasn't built in a day. Genzo didn't start as a global firm. <laughs> it's like, we have to, we have to take those steps and we have to show the strength of our together and the strength of our circles. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that's what the DBC scholarship represents to me. You know, it, it shows the strength in, in our circle to band together during tough times, to highlight greatness in the in the midst of sorrow. And as is straight up as I could put it, that's what it is. But the greatness is that Desiree was doing great work. I got to see it like I saw every day. <laughs> you know, she was doing great work. You all are doing great work, even before I knew you, I'd heard of you. Or looking at your application, like, that's great work. Like, you can't, come on, <laughs> you know? So I think to tie also to speak to your point, like, you know, for, for folk to try and put limits on people before they can reach a certain point, it's like, come on, that's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous to me. There's no limit to a person just because they're just getting started. We are emerging professionals. That's what we are, so. So I'll all- say, I'll say a couple things, a couple things to that, so. I did add, after that comment, I think, I don't think we had like a, a deep bio of Desiree on there. So I did add a link to her alumni magazine from her high school had done a profile, which for me, like that was like one of the best ways to show who she was. Like this is her family, her hometown where she grew up. So that is on there on the website. And then Ty, as far as like highlighting women, I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about writing the vortex, but I'll just mention, you know, sort of that's like that panel, just for people who are listening to this and don't know, the panel that we do at conferences um, every year. And we try to bring on a woman who hasn't gotten the notoriety, right? And so it's, it's been, it's like this year has really been one of the fun things that Catherine Prigmore did this year was actually like highlight like all the women that we have had on the panel and the fact that they've like gone on and like do these things and start these programs. But when we were, but they were on the panel sort of as the sort of the emerging architect, a lot of them, we were, they were just in the, the town or the city that we were doing the conference in. We were like, well, who do we know here? Who, who can we find that can be on this panel? And so it's been really interesting to see like the growth of that 15 year start in 2018. So yeah, 12 year, 12 year, I guess, cycle of doing that. And one of the things that I I do to try to like highlight people that maybe aren't getting sort of like getting notoriety maybe in their corners is that I used to, from the Riding the Vortex Facebook page, I used to like do a search like once a week or once a month on just like Black Women Architecture on Google and just be like, what pops up (laughs) on the Google for like the last month or whatever like that? Because yeah, people would get these articles in like their local newspaper or some local magazine. And like, that would be the only place that they saw it. It wouldn't go out like nationally. So like to be able to like highlight those things and highlight like all the great things that that we are doing in our communities or in our work or in our firms or, you know, community service or whatever it is that people are getting notoriety for in their small circle, but be able to, to highlight that and, and shine a light on it is something that I've tried to do because I feel like we do need to see more of each other and we need, do need to see like the great work that we're all doing out here. 
you do a great job, Catherine. I don't know if like <laughs> you get as much credit for it, but like I know when I think of sources of information, because you know me, I like to talk to people, and I always like I read a lot, and like I always tell people locally, and I'm like when I look back and think about it, like either you or Joel have posted probably like 75% of the like architecture related things that I share. So <laughs> and, and it's Thanks. just the two of you, like you guys just do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, a lot of grassroots efforts are what make the most impact, I think, especially like throughout history. You know, a lot of those great movements, the Student Nonviolent Committee, all it was grassroots at first. It was women wanting to make a difference, people, even NOMA. So I really appreciate this scholarship because it goes right to the source, you know. It's yeah, exactly that was, what we need at this time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that that's, that's, people have criticized us for that and like, oh, why didn't you go to like a larger organization and do the scholarship there? And and I think between like Nick and, you know, the group of us who founded it, it was like, yeah, it was like, we wanted it to be us. It's like for us, yeah. by us kind of like yeah. mentality of like, we don't want somebody else to be doing this for us. We want mm -hmm. us to be doing this because it was our friend. It was someone that we knew and mm -hmm. we want to have that touch. So maybe 10 years or 15 years from now when we're older and grayer and that kind of thing we've gone on and started rolling this cycle or whatever like that like maybe we can be like okay somebody else can take it over but I think this is only this is only the fifth anniversary that that of Desiree being gone and I think we still all feel that and and I think we're still too close to it to be like oh yeah someone else can do that now we don't need to have any imprint on it like it's, it's not an initiative it's not a it's not a uh it's I want to say it's not, an issue. it's not something it's not that we just take lightly like, it's, oh, yes, there's something. I got a free Saturday. Why not? Or, yeah, I'll do something. I've never been involved in something like this that's been this close. I mean, we've all been involved in organizations, whether it's normal or other organizations, and we put our time into it. We've argued with our colleagues about it. Oh, it needs to be this way or that way, whatever. But I've never been involved in something this significant. So to act like we can just take it lightly or make decisions that don't really matter or whatever is it is it does matter it is important you know and i think that's i don't know i, I don't i may just be talking be talking but no, <laughs> no. you all have grown so fast and so much yeah i mean you all have taken something and like it's grown so fast from where it started and i mean i feel like when people or groups start something outside people always have something to say it's not the way they would do it it's not the way they would make it it's not you know why didn't you do you know no I mean it's the way that you all invented envisioned it based off of what you knew about Desiree and how you all felt about her and her spirit and you're 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 sharing her spirit and a lot more people know more about her because of that I feel like so I mean I think that's one of my pet peeves that I have with like programming and events and stuff. I, somebody always has something to say. You, know, <laughs> you just keep doing what you do, and you know as long as that that mission or that reason behind it is still alive, nothing else matters. Indeed. On on that note, we'll have us speaking for four hours. So <laughs> <laughs> wait, I have a quick you question. Don't to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you want to edit this? <laughs> three-part series what do you guys think about doing like a PSA or some type of video about Desiree like it's on the early from the earlier part of the conversation it seems like the awareness around domestic violence and just making sure you know your circle or you're checking in on your circle 
is important, an important part of her story or the end of the story. And for me, when I saw the scholarship and I heard about Desiree, I started looking up everything because I wanted to know more about who she was. I could sense that she was a light, but I really wanted to know her story. I wanted to hear from her friends. I wanted to like get that full picture because it was an inspiration. So you guys possibly you could like make a video about her or I don't know, do something that's kind of a memorial along with the scholarship so that people, as a purpose of kind of like inspiring people, but also in a way, in awareness possibly, I don't know, just an idea, just from hearing this conversation, I just have a lot of like, I'm impacted. I have a lot of <laughs> emotions and like thoughts and wanting to live better, wanting to live more timely, you know, all of this, I think it's incredible. So yeah, if we can impact more people in that way, that's powerful. <laughs> well, I think that this podcast is the first step. Yeah, for um, sure just talking about her and stuff like that always crosses my mind how to bring us forward and let other people know she's not just the name i was very close to barbara so barbara's not just a, a scholarship you know like arbitrary name we plastered on exactly exactly other stuff has always come across my mind maybe she'd get an faia someday or you know like because they've done that too more towards barbara than to Nazareth, but yeah, sounds like I'm gonna I'm answer your question with what they usually tell me in any normal. Did <laughs> you brought it up? You it has become your baby. It's all you. <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, I mean I think, I think like it's a it's a cautionary tale, and for the people that knew her directly, it was very real, right? Because like you guys have to mourn the loss of your friend. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, it was also just indicative of like every story I had heard since I was in school about what it's like to be a woman in the field is that life mm-hmm. happens. We don't know whatever the life is, whether it is your mother got sick and you stopped working because you had to take care of her, or you had a kid, and then suddenly you're raising a kid by yourself. But like so many things happen, life happens. And not that life doesn't happen to men, but it, it tends to seem to set women back in a different way. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I think, you know, for hers, hers is like the scariest, right? The scariest situation. It's like, what happens when you're, you're not here? Mm-hmm. But like, we've got to rally around each other and get it done, right? And I think that's, to me, the urgency of, of the things you guys picked award was important. Because for many women, like there's two pressure points, right? That's the first one. And the second one is that first promotion once you're in the job. And like, those are the moments, right, where you have a kid or maybe you weren't putting, maybe Shirley that hasn't been able to put in as many hours on projects in 2020. And it's absolutely reasonable, right? Like I have (laughs) Facebook posts every week about how his child, who's the cutest thing on earth, is like completely impacting his his workday, right? It's hard. It's hard. But there's just this like impact on women that like, we know it's quantified. There's been studies that have shown us how it affects us. And to like be that one boost that you can kind of support them in that space, that's really important. Especially because there's so few, very specifically black women in the field, right? And it's I, like, and I, can you get past one barrier? Yeah, and I will clarify that the Black Women in Architecture Award is the only specific for women. And so men can apply. We haven't awarded any men yet, but men can apply for the DC, for the, DC the Harrisburg and for the NOMA Award. So, Black Women Architecture One is sort of like the one specifically for women. We've given women the other awards, but 
it doesn't it doesn't say that only women can apply for the other awards. I think people have like insinuated that or inferred that, but we do, you know, we do recognize that that being a black person in architecture as well, there's there's a big impact there as well. All right. Also, Catherine, we I worked with you on Noma magazine. You were the editor or you were over the magazine when I first got started. I was at Hampton still, but yep. yep. <laughs> You guys put in a lot of work on the magazine. So it's kind of, it's full circle and it's funny because yeah. we're all connected. Like I, <laughs> we are, it's amazing how the strings work even with all six of us on here. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's crazy <laughs> how small we are. Yep. Even, even yep. the ones in school right now, we probably could be like, yeah, I know your uncle's gray and uh, <laughs> friend, best friend aunt. I think that's the beauty of I think the social network, right? Noma, Noma, Jason, whatever it is. You know, I did a talk at Syracuse and it was funny because like they asked Renee Kimbrough 10 to, to coach. We did a talk together and like on surface, you would have assumed that we'd never met each other, right? Like nothing in our, res- we don't live in the same city. Our resumes don't overlap at all. And, you know, they showed up and, like, the white people didn't know we knew each other. So, like, I get there and they're like, oh, my God, have you guys met each other? And I'm like, man, y'all, she been texting me since she landed. Go get her a coffee. I was like, I'm just trying to get her up there. Let's take a break. No. And they were like, well, I was like, yeah, we walked over here together. We ate lunch already together. And they were like, how do you guys know each other? And it's like, just know we know. Like, yeah. Good. All right. On that note, guys. Thank you, Melissa, for the opportunity and the time and the vehicle. We all appreciate your podcast. It's been a great listening to you over the last year, year it's and a half. Been a year. It, it, been a year. January was was the first one. So, and you guys will be the first one in twenty twenty one. Cool. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>